created live on Fireside. The following program was recorded live on Fireside Chat. If you'd like to participate in these chats, join us every Thursday at noon Eastern Time at firesidechat.com slash scottmonte. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore those principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. If you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I regularly cover these topics, please find your way to scottmonty.com and hit that subscribe button. And if you haven't gotten around to giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, where we air this show after it's recorded, I'd appreciate you doing that. It helps other people find the show, and discover great leadership. This week we're exploring communication. Since before we mustered the power of speech, humans have always been communicating. We painted on cave walls. We drew in the dirt. We even used hand signals. What we were signaling is an imperative, an imperative for us to be able to share our ideas now, leaders are typically people with no lack of ideas. In fact, as a leader, your head may be positively overflowing with them. You have a vision. You can intuit the strategy. It's as clear as day to you. But how do you make the people around you see the same thing you do? One of the most important jobs of a leader isn't her financial acumen, or his ability to delegate. It's as simple as communication. I say simple, but clear, concise, persuasive communication is anything but easy. It takes hard work and a lot of reflection. Fortunately, our guest today has a set of tools to help leaders become more effective communicators. Tamsin Webster has spent the last 20 years helping experts drive action from their ideas. Part message strategist, part storyteller, part English-to-English translator, her work focuses on how to find and build the stories partners, investors, clients, and customers will tell themselves and others. Tamsin honed her experience through work in and for major companies and organizations like 
Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, and Intel, as well as with startups that represent the next wave of innovation in life science, biotech, climate tech, fintech, and pharma. She's a professional advisor at the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship and a mentor for the Harvard Innovation Labs. She's also served for over eight years as an executive producer and idea strategist for one of the oldest locally organized TED Talk events in the world, TEDx Cambridge. She was a reluctant marathoner twice is a champion ballroom dancer, in her mind, and learned everything she knows about messages, people, and change as a Weight Watchers leader. True story. And now, she's written a book that takes all of that experience and inspiration and makes it possible for you to make your big ideas irresistible. It's called Find Your Red Thread. Tamsin, welcome to Timeless Leadership. I don't think my bio has ever sounded so good, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Well, it, it lends itself to great audio storytelling, the way oh, I see thanks. it. So, I appreciate that. Um, tell me a little bit about Weight Watchers and how that <laughs> led to where you are. Well, see... Scott, 21 years ago, I weighed 50 pounds more than I do now um, and wanted to do something about it, jo ended up joining Weight Watchers, uh, and then I was so grateful for the change that that had created in me that I wanted to pay that forward, so I decided to moonlight as a Weight Watcher leader and did that for 13 years in addition to my full-time day job as, as a marketing and brand strategist. And explain to those of us who aren't familiar what a Weight Watcher leader does. Sure. So Weight Watchers is a is a you know weight loss health lifestyle program, and and a leader is the person who you know, every week facilitates what Weight Watchers calls now calls workshops uh, to help focus on different topics that help people achieve their health goals. And so my job uh, sometimes up to five times a week from anywhere from fifty to 150 people at a time, my job was to focus on a topic and say something, do something, create that, you know, green light moment in someone's head that would make them go, you know, I'm going to try that this week or, you know, create some other form of permanent shift in thinking or behavior. So it was, it was an incredible proving ground for whether or not you could actually <laughs> communicate ideas uh, for the sake of change. And it taught me, I think, would say more than I ever learned from all the years I spent in business school. Now, that's fascinating to me because, I mean, what, what you're basically doing is, is, as you say, it's a proving ground. You're, you're actually testing out ideas, concepts, strategies, and seeing the results in person in real time. Absolutely. I mean, because it, it's really clear, like either someone works towards their goals and achieves those or they don't. Uh, you either as a leader retain members to your meetings or you don't. Uh, ideally, you grow them as I was lucky enough to have, you know, over the 13 years. Um, yeah, you you know right away <laughs> or not what you said worked. Um, and so, it yeah, it taught me a lot of things, not the least of which was to be able to read pretty quickly whether or not what I had just said made sense to somebody and to be able to, on my feet, figure out another way to explain the same concept. 
Hmm. That's fantastic. And and when you when you need to think on your feet like that, I mean it you, you have a whole array of responses, I would imagine, that you could you could gin up. Um what what was your methodology for deciding to go one route versus another? Because at at Weight Watchers, I mean you are you are expecting people to make the ultimate change. It's a change in habit, it's a change in lifestyle, um, it's a complete mindset shift. So how were you able to uh, determine which way you were going to go, given all of that data in front of you. You know, I I, I can answer that retroactively. Uh, I think at the time it really was the what's known as the uh, what is it the the intrinsic transfer of information um, or transfer of knowledge. Meaning, I was getting immediate real time feedback on that work that didn't. Um, and so at the time, I was just like. On my feet, I would fully admit. I was like, uh, okay, how else do I explain this? Um, and so I would just kind of reach for either something that I thought would be more relevant, an example or an analogy of something that would be more relevant, or I would ask for more information so I could get something more from them from which to say, okay, okay, they've asked me a question. I'm not quite sure how to answer it, so let me get a little bit more information. That That's definitely a skill that I picked up. Retroactively, I will tell you that I think what I started to get intuitively good at, but that, that was from practice, not because of some you know innate gift, was understanding what they were thinking now. So I, I think I was able to really start to build the skill of, well, how are they thinking about this right now? Because if I can understand how they're looking at this situation, then I can understand how to frame what I'm talking about from their current point of view. And if I can frame it from their current point of view, then I have an opportunity to show them something else in the line of sight that actually will help them answer that question for themselves. Oh, that's fantastic. And that that is going to lead us directly into the red thread. So this is perfect. Um, before I do get there, though, I, I want to acknowledge that what you said there about gathering more information, about responding to them, the whole yes and mentality uh, our friend, Kathy Clotes Guest, was our guest on here last week uh, talking about improv and, and humor. And, and that whole uh, yes and mentality was very, very important to what she said. And I'm hearing that red thread come through here again. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's nobody. One of the things I talk about in one of my keynotes is that, that one of the most powerful drivers of all human behavior is this this need that all of us have to be seen as smart, capable, and good, as I like to say. Um, and it drives everything. And even if we, we want to be seen that way, we may or may not believe we are actually that way, but it's really important that we are perceived that way, um, either by ourselves and or by other people. Um, and so one of the things that I learned, right, I spent a lot of time even in my days as a Weight Watcher leader really researching how to, you know, what motivates people, how do people make decisions, how do people process information. Uh, what became very clear was that one of the most important ways to get someone or to help someone be open to a change in behavior is to validate and validate their current one. And that can seem really counterintuitive, particularly to, to leaders or to marketing and salespeople who are like, but I'm trying to get them to do something different. Why would I ever tell them that what they're doing right now is right? But understand what I didn't say, say that it was right. I didn't validate that whatever they're doing right now makes sense. That mm -hmm. There's a reason that they're doing it. 
And if you can validate like, you know, hey, I get it. I get why you're doing this right now. Um, it makes a big, it, 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 it opens them up. And uh, so Dr. Robert Cialdini, very seminal book on, on influence. Um, he talks about this concept of reciprocity and how that's an important driver of, of influence and persuasion. And what can happen is that as soon as you validate where somebody is right now and say, yeah, I totally, it, it, okay, yeah, this makes sense why you're looking at it from this perspective. Mm. You have given them that ground, which means they're much, much more likely to give you ground. Because if you're saying, okay, great, well, do you agree there's another way to look at it? Not another thing to do, another way or a th- way to think, but a, another lens to look through. Then you, you've opened a path to change that's, that otherwise wouldn't be there. Mm. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it, this is so fascinating because uh, about five episodes ago, we spoke to David Murray, who wrote An Effort to Understand. Hmm. Uh, it's about hearing one another and ourselves in a nation cracked in half. And his whole, uh, and that's taken from a, a Robert F. Kennedy speech, where he said, we really need to make an effort to understand. And what you're talking about there, what I'm hearing is putting yourself in the mindset of someone else, even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't think it's valid to them their way of thinking makes sense to them and 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 they need that validation in order to come on the journey with you yes yes i mean it is it is um it has all sorts of different names different approaches radical empathy is one of them it's really a skill as i've learned from my bevy of therapists known as mentalizing or cognitive empathy I think we're really familiar with, you know, with emotional empathy, which is that I can, uh, you can understand what someone's feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think equally important, particularly if you're in a leadership position, because communication is so important, as your intro talked about, it's really important to build the skill of understand what somebody else is thinking. Mm-hmm. Because, again, back to those bevies of therapists, but also to my Weight Watcher years, um, thoughts, feelings, and actions are inextricably linked to each other. Mm-hmm. So what you think, you know, drives how you feel, which drives what you do. And every single combination of those things is also true. So by understanding, and I find personally that understanding how someone's thinking about something is actually something you can do something about much more directly because you, people are going to feel and they have every right to feel whatever they're going to feel. And, but you can't just change a feeling. Like you can't just flip that switch. Either someone's angry or they're not, or they're happy or they're not. But that feeling comes from either an action or a thought from someplace else. But that feeling sits within that person and you don't get to control it. But you can influence the thoughts that are going into that. And so that to me, particularly in the, in the realm of business and business storytelling and business messaging, um, that actually gives people a much more practical and ultimately usable approach to communication, to leadership and all of that, then, then understanding like, well, just empathy. Well, great. If you understand how, how someone feels, that's useful. Absolutely. But to help them change that feeling, you need to actually understand what they're thinking. And that's a skill that can be built. And a lot of people don't actually have it to start. <laughs> you are, you are not kidding. No. So, so that, that leads us directly and, and we'll get back to uh, how we change people, uh, how people think, but Talk to us about the red thread. What is the red thread? So there's many answers to that, Scott Monty, but the, the best, I think the best simplest way to describe it is that the, the red thread is the story that we tell ourselves to connect a question to an answer. We do this all the time. 
uh, subconsciously, uh, preconsciously, I should say, uh, that as we are processing information about the world and about ourselves and about other people, our brains are kind of inventing things that say, you know, they're inventing explanations for why things happen the way they do, why people behave the way they do, um, why we behave the way that we do. Uh, and these explanations follow the structure of story. Uh, they turn into stories and we replay these stories. And so the red thread, the, the method I developed, is a way of surfacing those stories so that we can really truly understand what is that mental connection? What is that story that's connecting a question to an answer, a problem to a solution, an issue to an idea? So t take us through the, the methodology that you use, because I, I think it's fascinating and it, it really deconstructs how we get from point A to point B to point C in this process. Yeah, the best, I think the easiest way to understand it is to understand it through the lens of more traditional story structure, uh, because it's, it's a, I can't wait to talk with, with an academic on this to discover whether or not they feel like it's, because it feels to me like a total chicken and egg situation. Do stories, like once upon a time stories, have the elements they do because that's the information our brain is looking for? Or, you know, or did it happen the other way around, right? Did our, our brains start to look for these elements? Um, I suspect that it was the brain first. And so as we were trying to make sense of why the sun rose and set during the day, um, we came up with stories to explain that. And those stories had certain elements because those were the pieces that our brain wanted. So I say that because it helps to understand, to kind of map back, back over. Uh, so once upon a time stories, the very first part of the red thread of a, you know, of a business kind of message, um, starts the same, at the same place that the true action of a story does. Um, and in any traditional story, you really start to engage with what's happening. The action of the story starts the, the moment that you discover that the main character wants something that they do not yet have. So, an example I wrote about in my newsletter recently, you know, if you're reading Harry Potter or you're watching the movie, you might be intrigued by why a wizard is walking down an otherwise normal suburban street and why he's leaving a baby on the doorstep. But you're not actually engaged in the story of Harry Potter until you realize that Harry has a family that is not the one that he wants. Like he wants to feel belonging and he does not have that now. And at that moment, we realize it as viewers, we lean in. So the very first part of the brain story, this red thread, starts with uh, what I call the audience's goal. So it is what the person that you're talking to, back to what we were talking about just a minute ago, from their point of view, what is a question that they are asking for which they do not yet have an answer and for which your idea is an answer, right? So how does it's a question that they have right now. That's the first piece, the goal. Um, in every great story, after that establishment of the audience or the main character's goal, we run into a problem that people don't know they have at the beginning. Um, Harry is not aware of Lord Voldemort at the beginning of the story. He's just aware of his, like, crappy family. Um, but there's an introduction of a, of, a, of a problem that people don't know they have. And so that's the second element of the red thread, is identifying a problem, in this case of perspective, that's keeping the person that you're talking to uh, from seeing another option. And this is, again, what we were talking about before. It's, it's what lens are they using? What other lens that's still re realistic for them is also possible for them? The next major turning point uh, in a story is something that's often called the climax or the moment of truth. Uh, my favorite word for it, and this is for you, Scott Monty, is the anagnorisis. 
Whoa. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's the anagnorus is literally the moment where a true where a character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. And in this point in the story, that anagnorisis, this recognition that something is true, and if it's true, it puts what their goal in jeopardy, because it creates this crisis, it forces a choice. And so this is what also our messages need to have. We need to have something that creates that moment of truth. So we've got a goal, audience's goal, a two-part problem, their current perspective and a future one, and a truth that makes that problem impossible to ignore because it puts that goal, that thing that they want in jeopardy. Now in stories, that moment of truth forces a choice. And, and so I call this the change. It forces a change in thinking or behavior because either someone has to give up something that they want or they have to change their perspective and do something different. So that's the fourth element. So we've got goal, problem, truth, change, which is a high-level shift in thinking or behavior that your idea or whatever you're talking about represents. And then the kind of in the last final act of a story is what does the character do to make good on that choice that they've made and to get what they want and achieve their goal? And so I call those the actions. Um, they aren't as critical as everything else in the red thread, but they are what make the change concrete. So those are the five elements, goal, problem, truth, change, action. And as I said, they map directly to any classic story uh, that we've, actually any story, period. Yeah. <laughs> it's in there. Yeah, uh, that that is fascinating. And, and um, you know, I've seen you workshop this. I've seen this come to life. Um, and just to make this a little more tangible, uh, I mean, I, I, I think those five elements are, are very understandable, but let's let's turn it into a real-world example. And I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, Tamsin, <laughs> but, but you're a pro. All right. I know yes. you can do that. So I do. let's take the inception of the iPod as an example of a red thread idea, taking this big idea and bringing it to life. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you're asking a lot. All right. So, so if you're starting with an audience goal, yeah, let, let me retroactively try to figure out what the heck was going I'll, on. I'll work Steve it. Jobs I'll, is mine. I'll work right. it with you here if you want. All right. So I, no, but I, I, I got you. I got you. All right. Okay. Because remember the first piece of this is like, not what does, what does Apple want? What did Steve Jobs want? That's important to understand what outcome you're looking for. But remember the goal is the audience's goal. So they were looking at and saying, what do people want for which they don't yet have and an idea like a you know where either an answer doesn't exist or where there could be a better better answer and that question was probably like how can i take my music with me how can i take my music with me and more specifically it was how can i take my music catalog with me because at the time since you and i are of an age we were very limited to only ever listening to an album at a time right because we were either listening to a cassette or a cd but that meant that we had it was like that piece or mixtape but it was a finite amount of, of whatever okay so um, there's probably a couple different ways to look at this two-part problem of perspective. Um, but I think what I just talked about is probably a way to start framing it. So the, the first part of that perspective was typically, if we're thinking about how to take our music with us, we're thinking in terms of albums, right? And their perspective, Apple's perspective was like, well, what if we thought about it in terms of songs? Um, and turn, you know, or instead of like, these are physical objects, right? What if we thought of them as files, right? Digital files. So the two part perspective could be physical objects versus digital files. Um, because ultimately even what gets pressed onto a CD starts as a, you know, it, 
there's a digital file that ends up in there. Yes, there's analog and all that stuff, but you know, let's talk about that as the two-part perspective, physical thing, digital file. Truth statement here. Now, this is one of those rare things where it was their own research and development that revealed uh, something to be true, but it was something that the audience could readily agree with without, without them having just take Apple on faith. They basically said digital files take up a lot less room than physical ones, right? So that's why if we're kind of thinking research and development internally change, let's figure out something that actually allows us to carry the physical, the digital files, right? In a physical object, right? Rather than having a whole bunch of physical objects, let's figure out something that will hold the digital files. And then what you end up with is a thousand songs in your pocket. How about that? But that is exactly what I was envisioning you doing. <laughs> that's fantastic. So there you go. Yeah, that's that's my that's my two minute red thread analysis of the launch of and, the iPod. You know that, and it, it, it's really masterfully done. I'm sure you could do an even better job if you you know spent a lot of time on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I clearly, <laughs> recognize I put you on the spot here, but but it's it's a proof that if you take this concept, even in, in shorthand, you're able to work through it and give yourself a window into all right. How do I expand this? A little more. How do I make more sense of it and create the story around it? Um, you know, ultimately, I, I think the master stroke in that once they had it all figured out was was the the shorthand communication where they said it's a thousand songs in your pocket. Yes. Right. That's. Yep. We didn't know what to call it then. We didn't. We didn't even know we needed a thousand songs in our pocket. You know, Steve Jobs has always been or had been a, a master at solving problems that people didn't know they had yes and once you've seen it the way he sees it you're like oh my gosh i can't go back i i, I can't do it the other way how, how did i yeah. ever live my life before this and what's so brilliant about the way that that was done so the mistake that i see a lot of people make when they copy that kind of apple thing is that they try to go first they try to go for the tagline first they try to like well, mm. how can we get to a thousand like let's come up with something oh i know a thousand songs in your pocket that is a hundred percent I'm willing to bet a lot of money on not where they started that, that <laughs> innovation process. And so here's here, the analogy I often use when I'm explaining this to people is that if you start by trying, like if you, if you try to like encapsulate your idea and you start at the tagline, then it's kind of like when you're looking for an image to like put in a, you know, put in a fly, flyer on your website or in a presentation, right? And like in the thumbnails on Gmail or Google images, you're like, this is awesome. And then when you open it up, you're like, oh my God, it's too small. I can't use this. And you know that if you were to blow it up, like onto the screen, that it would look really crappy. And that happens because there's literally not enough data in the file for it to survive at scale. The same thing happens with your idea. If you try to start with like a word or a tagline, or let me start with the thousand songs in your pocket. That's just, it's not how it works. Like 99% of the time. You don't come up with the idea and then come up with everything behind it. So one of the things that I say in the book, and I've said now for a couple of years, is that great ideas aren't found. They're built. They are built by that story creating structure in your brain. As you know, your brain goes, here's a, here's a problem. Here's a question I have. Are everybody's looking at it this way? Could I look at it this way? Yes. Why does that work? Oh, right, because this is true. So what if I did this instead? So what actually happens is that the, what I found over and over again is what's much more useful to get to that one line is that think about it like ingredients instead. 
or you're making, you're pulling together the ingredients of a delicious, wonderful, like sauce, like a, you know, like a marinara, right? So you need to pull on, pull on to your table. You need, you need really high quality tomatoes and you need great quality um, basil and olive oil. And you just, you need the best stuff, right? And then you put it in the pot and then you have sauce, right? But anybody who's made a good marinara knows what do you need to do to that sauce? You need to cook it down. And when you reduce it and you get it so that it's concentrated, that's when it makes, like, that's when the magic happens. And the same thing is true with your idea. If you pull in those ingredients, you break it down into its component parts that we talked about, that goal, problem, truth, change, action. That's like, and then you make those as good as they can be. That's like getting the high quality ingredients on the table. You make sure they work together in what I like to call a storyline, but you can think of it like an elevator pitch. And then from that, you can cook it down to that one sentence so that you can say, you know, for instance, if I were to describe the, the, the red thread of my book on the red thread, that the best way to make ideas irresistible is to build the stories that people will tell themselves about it. Well, I can 100% guarantee you that I did not just write that sentence down. <laughs> like, that is not what happened. It started with kind of filling out the whole thing. What's the question? What's the process? What's this unexpected answer? And when you have those two things, something that people want via a means they don't expect, that's when all of a sudden you get that magic. And that's why A Thousand Songs in Your Pocket works so well because it was something people wanted, music, in a way they didn't expect. A thousand of them in my pocket? Wow. Right? So that's that kind of, that's where that magic can come in. But my, my you know, the big lesson to take away here is like, don't start at the sentence. You've got to start at the structure of the idea. Yeah. And, and I think the analogy you make there is so apt because whether it is that final catchphrase or whether it is the perfectly cooked marinara sauce, people experience it and they're blown away. But they don't necessarily have the patience. You know, when you, when you reduce something, when you reduce a sauce, it takes time. Yes. You know, you can't, you can't just turn it all the way up to boil. Uh, you know, it'll burn. Uh, and, and, and you have to stand there and stir it and watch it and uh, take the time. And, and I think the same thing is true with people when they see, whether it's a great tagline or a great expression of an idea communicated to them, they, they simply want to jump to the end instead of doing the work and having the patience to work through it to make sure that it is time-tested and that it makes sense in their audience's mind. You know, we, we are all so quick to be excited about what it is that we are doing. You know, every press release you see is, a, we're pleased to announce, well, hey, good for you. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you're pleased. But what about me? Why is it thrilling me? And I've always said that unless you are Starbucks or Duncan, people don't wake up first thing in the morning thinking about your brand. They have other things going on in their life, and you need to account for that in how you approach them and the, the, the ways that you communicate. Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the things you said, I mean, to the, to the theme of timeless leadership, um, I would say that one of the classic problem pairs, one of these classic problems of perspective that get in our way, is that a lot of times we focus, particularly in the marketing world and, and in sales enablement and messaging, on how do we stand out? But ultimately, standing out is important, yeah, but you need to stand the test of time. And in order to be strong enough to do both, right, if your idea is, you know, like if, I mean, why are you having the idea in the first place? Like that's the thing, it's like your idea deserves 
to, to be communicated fully. Uh, and one of the things that I loved about what you were doing in the, in the opening was talking about, you know, how we've, you know, how we've been communicating for millennia, but it's, it's almost like one of those koans, right? Like if you, if you speak a thing and it doesn't actually get heard, did you communicate at all? <laughs> I would say no, I, I'm absolutely in the camp of like, if it's, if what you say or write or speak or however you put it out there, isn't, isn't comprehended on the other end, if it isn't absorbed as just as something more than like sound waves hitting their ears, then it hasn't fully succeeded at being communicated. It needs to be sent, but it also needs to be received mm. before it can be acted on. And I think a lot of times, just to your point, like we spend way more time figuring out on how to like just get the message out there than on making sure that it, we're getting out there in a form where it's much more likely to be received. Mm. And to me, that's the goal. Like, I don't, I don't want to just, you know, say something. I want to change someone's mind. Like, I want to change the way they see the world. And, and that's important because if we, you, you can't change what people do until you change how they see. And but sometimes we just feel like if we just say it, that will do it. I'm like, no, 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 no. That is just not how that process works. That's great. We're talking with Tamsin Webster, author of the book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. You can find it at redthreadbook.com. Uh, Tamsin, you, you have uttered a couple of uh, what you call Tamsinisms over the course <laughs> of this. You, yeah. you, you, said, uh, you just said uh, to change what people do, you have to change how they see. Love yep. that. When you know what someone wants, you know where the story starts. Yes. Now that's that's interesting because we we have all these preconceived notions in our minds about how to tell stories. Everyone's a storyteller these days, but it it, it really depends on how you pick up someone's interest and and where you bring them along on that journey in order for it to be uh, successful. So can can you talk a little bit about knowing where the story starts? Yeah, I, and in a lot of ways, we've we've we have we've hinted at it already. Um, you know, the the story starts, and the reason it starts is is one of the things that the brain finds irresistible is a curiosity gap, um, and that is you know that's defined not by me but plenty of others is you know the gap between something that you know and something that you want to know, and that is that is a kind of mental gap that your brain cannot stand to let stand stay open um and so if someone considers to be you know this thing that they don't yet know to be relevant to them more on that in a second um and and it's clear that you potentially know something about it that they don't right but that you're not making them feel bad about it that's another point um it's it is it truly is irresistible to them um, and I, it's one of the ways that I describe that goal statement that starts the red thread is that it is what you're essentially putting out there is an irresistible outcome for them because you're choosing a question you know that they're trying to answer for themselves right now. And it can be, you know, something as simple as, you know, I speak a lot with marketing folks, like how can I raise the conversion, you know, my conversion rate, how can I get my contact to convert better or sales teams? It can be something like, how can I raise the probability of success of this conversation? But from leadership standpoint, it can also be, how can I get people on board with this potentially difficult change? But the question that the, their audience is asking is, what is this going to mean for me, 
right? Am I going to have my job? Am I going to lose my job? What does this look like for me? You have to be, you have to start there because once you can say, Hey, today I'm going to give you an answer to this, then you've just opened that curiosity gap and they're going to lean in and their brain recognizes it as a place where a story is. And by the way, if it's a question they want to have answered, their brain also recognizes kind of instantly that this is a story that's potentially about them. Mm. And that, you know, that other than the story we tell ourselves is the most irresistible story of all. So I've, I've got another conundrum for you. Um, and it was inspired by your newsletter this morning. Oh, uh, if you, <laughs> if, if you don't get Tamsin's newsletter, uh, the red thread newsletter and her video series message in a minute, make sure you sign up for that. When you go to redthreadbook.com. Um, this morning you talked about the 1918 pandemic and yes. w- what can we learn from the past? Oh my gosh, here it is. Timeless coming up once again. <laughs> if we only could learn from our mistakes, look, we don't even remember what we did two weeks ago, let alone a hundred and two years ago. So, um, in this case, there are all sorts of indicators along the way, a lot of parallel behaviors. And interestingly enough, uh, just in my other reading this morning, I was browsing through uh, the public domain review, as you do. Um, and <laughs> right. Well, as you and I do. <laughs> We're weirdos, guys. I know. But, but again, you know, these ideas can come from anywhere. And, and these building blocks that we put together, because one of your Tamsinisms is that uh, good ideas uh, aren't found, they're built. Yep. Great ideas. Um, and, and this, to, in my mind, this is how I, I, I put different building blocks in and I, I, I come up with something. So in this case, it was the Mark of the Beast, Georgian Britain's anti-vaxxer movement. Hmm. Oh my gosh, we have anti-vaxxers again today. Well, in uh, around 1800, pretty much one in four uh, Britons was infected with smallpox. And there was a physician by the name of Edward Brenner who completely by happenstance uh, discovered uh, the, the vaccination for smallpox. Yeah. And interestingly, I, and again, my Latin roots should have uh, recognized this, the word vaccination actually comes from vaca or cow because what he discovered was actually cowpox but when your body builds up enough immunity to, to cowpox, it can then fight smallpox. There was another competing physician there uh, by the name of William Rowley who scared people into not taking the vaccine because he said it disfigured you, it caused sores, it caused all kinds of things. And he put out an entire book illustrating all of the horrible things that could happen to you if you... Uh, got vaccinated. And the, the, the challenge then is they didn't fundamentally understand how the vaccine worked. They just knew that it did, th- those that believed in it. But uh, in, in the article, it says, uh, even those who embraced Jenner's vaccine lacked the conceptual framework mm-hmm. needed to understand precisely how it worked. This gap between evidence and explanation allowed doubts to fester. That's a great problem pair, by the way. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's why I I found this. I'm like, oh, my God, we got to talk about this. Because, look, here we are today in 2021, and there's a lot of people who are questioning the COVID vaccine. Mm 
That seems to be an intractable problem to overcome in many people's minds. Mm-hmm. And, and one of your Tamsinisms, I know, and I want to relate this, was we're not rational. We're rationalizing, right? Yeah. So how do you take those kinds of concepts, weave them together, and say, well, this is how we might approach convincing people to become vaccinated today? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, you give me the easy one, Scott. Um, so, so a couple of things. One is that, and, and anybody who works in this kind of field will tell you the same thing. So I'm not the first one to say this, but um, the, you have to get rid of the Hail Mary perspective uh, when you're communicating with someone whose current position is very distant from yours. Um, that you got to think much more in the grind of getting down the field. Um, and that a single conversation is very unlikely to get them all the way to like, oh my gosh, I've seen the light. Let me undo this. Because the ability for someone to do that means that they have to let go at some level um, of that basic human need to be seen as smart, capable, and good. And the thing is that the more someone has given to a particular to a particular um, stance, uh, the less likely and the more painful it is for them to give up on it. And so there's really fascinating research from the first person who really dug into this was a researcher by the name of Leon Festiger. Uh, and his work was originally on doomsday cults um, at where, and, and we've all seen them and know about them, on, you know, tragically where, uh, you know, they'll, some of them have tragic consequences, but you know, what would, what will happen with a doomsday cult if they say, as he did, you know, I think in 1959 or 57, um, there was a doomsday cult that said that the world was going to end on December 23rd. Actually, it was 1953. Um, and obviously it didn't, right? Or we wouldn't be here. Um, but what he was fascinated by was what happened to the, to the dooms, you know, to the doomsday cultists. Uh, and what he found was the people who were kind of like not necessarily the true believers were like just kind of quietly went away. They're like, well, that was a fun thing in my life. But the people who had like really gone all in on it, like they, they, they'd sold their house, they'd kind of given everything away. Like the idea of changing their perspective was so deeply emotionally painful because that gap between I want to be a good person and I did a not good, you know, I, I want to be seen as a smart, capable, good person. And oh my gosh, did I just do a not smart, not capable, not good thing? That gap is so painful that our, our brain won't let it stand. And what will happen is we'll rationalize it. And while you think that the logical thing would be like, oh, haha, that information must have been wrong. No, no, that is not what happened. <laughs> I mean, in the case of the original research Fessinger did, they doubled down. They were like, well, see, the lack of spaceship coming to pick us up as the world was destroyed actually is proof that we were so good about warning the world about it that that's our new mission. Now, as people not in that group, we can be like, that's not the mark of a rational human. Um, but the thing is that that's what happens. And so the same thing is happening with somebody who has um, anti-vaccine leanings, right? Because particularly if they have been public about it, particularly if they have uh, taken steps with it, the, the, the mental pain associated with maybe this wasn't the right idea is too painful for them, for their brain to accommodate. It, it just, they can't. So I say all that because the most you can generally do is to get people to 
move a little bit on like an aspect of a point. And there was some really interesting research that was done, for instance, with uh, people on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one thing that they did find to be useful was to have rational but empathetic conversations with people and take them to take those conversations to a paradoxical extreme. Right. So they would kind of ask and ask and ask and, and they would say, but so, but do you agree that it's always, then so do you agree that it's always right to, to murder someone in the name of whatever? And at that point they would go, well, no, not that. And what they found is that that type of, that type of, um, taking something to its paradoxical extreme called, called paradoxical thinking helps to soften someone's position. So that's a thing that people can do. There was other research that showed that if you can get people to kind of agree on not necessarily paradoxical thing, but consistent, but conflicting information that they can also soften and moderate their position. Again, they're not going to flip sides, but they are going to move towards the middle a little bit more. And this was done on with climate change deniers. And what they found was if they could, if in the course of, again, of an empathy based conversation, when it's driven by curiosity and not by the need to convince, and that's an important point too, what they found was that they could get people to agree that they believed in other principles of science, like, do you believe that gravity is the reason that things aren't flying around right now? Do you believe that germs are spread by, by, by bacteria and not just, you know, whatever. Um, do you, you know, do you agree in, you know, the physical laws of motion that when they then return the conversation to climate change, those people were able to soften their perspective on, well, maybe that, maybe there is a, maybe there is a relationship here. Maybe there is a scientific relationship that they weren't previously willing to accommodate. So I say all of that because the real takeaway when you're trying to when you're trying to have a conversation with someone who is sitting so polar opposite from where you are right now um, is, is a couple of things. One, any conversation you engage with them needs to be one where you have a mindset of learning and not winning, where you are seeking to understand their position, not to win the argument. Because as soon as you go in with a mindset of winning the argument, so are they and someone's going to lose. The second thing is, is that the easiest way and the most reliable way to change somebody's behavior long-term is not to try to change their beliefs, but to actually put the change of thinking and behavior within their current system of beliefs. And that's why that one about client change, the climate change was so effective because their brain, remember that gap, the brain can't stand that kind of cognitive dissonance. So in the face of, I believe in science over here, it makes it really hard for them to go, but I don't believe it over here. Mm. So, so rather than saying, do you, you know, jump right to, well, it, you know, climate change is man-made, we could at least get them, you could at least get them to go, okay, science must apply because science applies over here. And the same thing kind of a, could, could potentially work with someone who is, is taking an anti-vaccination stance. You know, it, it seems there are <laughs> there there are no lack of conspiracy theories and and fanciful beliefs out there uh, to which to apply these principles these days. Um, yes, unfortunately. And, and, yeah. and here's the thing, though, when wh- whether it's that you know whether it's it's talking to someone from the flat Earth Society or QAnon or whatever it may be, or whether it's um, trying to help your employees understand about a new direction you're taking your team or your company. 
it seems to me that we are bound to get frustrated when people don't see things the way we do, when, when we're not able to convey the proper meaning to them, even if we do understand their thinking. So my question is, how do we begin to back off on that very natural sense of emotion that gets bound up in some of these discussions? Hmm. Well, uh, back to that thought, feeling, action triangle. I always, in my mind, I always, I always imagine them as like a rubber band around three fingers, right? Thoughts, feelings, actions. And so the way that you can, the way that you can affect one, uh, sometimes the way to affect one is to, is to affect one of the other two. Um, and, without going into the deep therapy reasons for this, I always tend to, you know, rather than try to like dig too deep in the feelings, I, I spend a lot of time personally on like, okay, well, what's the thinking that's leading to that? And I'll totally admit that, do you know, did you know that your neuroses are the great cause, like the great idea for a business? Because that's exactly what in a lot of ways the red thread was designed to do because I hated being in that position of not getting an idea across. It's so frustrating and so one of the things that, you know, the thought that can get to it now is that at least now with the red, with the red thread, um, because I, I have tested it so much because I, I know inside and out the, the, the science uh, that it's based on. Um, and I've, you know, and I've had it poked and prodded by really smart people, like multiple, you know, just, you know, actual scientists, actual brain scientists have, have, have tested it out. Um, Here's what I know, that if I have done the work to craft a, a receiver-oriented message with empathy that starts from the position of this person is smart, capable, and good, that I want them to perceive me as smart, as smart, capable, and good as I perceive them, um, that I want them, that, that I'm curious, that I, that I am engaging in this conversation to learn. If I have done all that and they are still not listening, then I, then that's a place where I say, well, I have done the best that I could with the information that I have. And that's the thought that can get, that for me can release from the emotional, like, oh my God, um, do I still get frustrated? Oh, heck yeah. Um, because it's kind of like, what are you not seeing? But what I try to flip is like, okay, it, instead of saying what, you know what I saw the other day, I wish I knew where it was, but it is, it has been this problem pair, as I like to call them, that just absolutely sat with me. And it was talking about how to soften our judgments of other people, because it's that judgment of other people that can lead to that tension and that yeah. friction and that polarization. And, and the, 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 the phrase, the, just the, the little contrast that they suggested was to say, to, instead of saying, you should, say, I wish you would. And that, and I just like that flip in my head. I was like, boom. It was like this massive, like bomb went off in my head. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, that is a, that's it. Because if I can, if I can even in the moment of frustration, stop myself from going, well, you should be, you know, you should recognize I'm right here. And just like, I wish that it puts it back and kind of gives each person their agency, um, their ability to feel in control of themselves, their world, their decisions. And truly, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to communication, there actually is nothing more important. Because the thing, you know, what, as much as I talked about smart, capable, and good, 
the, the core thing behind that is someone's is, is respecting and enabling someone's own agency, their own agency to have the opinions that they do their own agency in making the choice to switch. And so the, the approach that I take is to do everything I can to understand where they are coming from and to start from the perspective that from their perspective right now, they are right. So how can I look at my position from their perspective and find a path that would be true to them to where I am? Yeah. Does that mean you have to do a lot more work? It does in the beginning, but, but I, eventually you start to understand that there's patterns to how people come to their decisions. And once you start to see those, then it com- becomes a lot easier to even in the moment say, Okay, let me try it. Let me try it this way. And that's honestly where some of my Weight Watcher training comes back into play. I'm like, okay, that way didn't work. What about this? Um, and 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 be curious. There's there's nothing that is the to me that's the ultimate respect you can pay somebody else is to be truly curious, not in a condescending way, not in a curious about how I can manipulate you to another. Just truly curious about why it is that they see the world the way that they do. Because you know what, you might learn something. I'm not saying that they're not still, you know, believing in misinformation or whatever, but there's, you know, back to my therapist, behind every feeling is a need, you know, behind every feeling is a need. And so behind the, 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 the feeling that, that some piece of misinformation is right is a need. What is that need? Because if you can help someone fulfill that need and you can help them fulfill it in a way that doesn't violate that sense of identity that they have for themselves, that's when you have a path to conversation and hopefully healing. That's great. You know, Tamsin, it's interesting. You're, you're talking about the, you know, acknowledgement and, and understanding of other people. This harkens right back to another episode we had on here not too long ago on humility, uh, leader humility. And, and my guest that time, Dr. Marilyn Gist, uh, Gist, excuse me, said that, um, when it comes to leader humility, uh, it's about recognizing the inherent dignity in everyone, right? That each person is worthy of honor and respect of who he or she is, regardless of their accomplishments. And it sounds exactly like what you're acknowledging here as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, because we want, you know, the, we want, we, as humans, that's how we want to be treated. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I refer to, not in the book, but it's the thing I, I often talk about is what I call the persuader's paradox, where we are somehow willing to do to other people in, in the name of persuasion, um, you call it marketing, call it leadership, call it sales, whatever, but we're willing to do to other people what, absolutely would never work on us and we wouldn't tolerate it. Mm. Um, and that can extend to like, you know, early days of social when everyone was like, use, get a brand page. And if you ask them if they ever visited brand pages, they were like, no, oh, like, no. So yeah. <laughs> to, to how we make, I'm like, when have you ever been convinced by someone telling you you were stupid? Exactly. You have never, you yeah. have never been persuaded by that. Right. So to, to think that somehow magically it will work on somebody else, um, 
is 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 magical thinking of the of in my opinion some of the worst of the worst kind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's yeah. Beware of the persuaders paradox. That's that that's a great observation. Well, it looks like we have a question for you. Ariel is up here. Ariel, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hi. Uh, really glad to be here. You know, um, the my, my question is is that like. I, I switched from President Trump to Yang. So do you think it's because like Yang acknowledged all these economic problems that, you know, the Americans were going through instead of just judging the people who voted for Trump as just like racist or like terrible people that he managed to convert like a ton of Trump supporters to his cause? And yes, I'm happy yes. to say that I was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, Ariel, I think you're 100% correct on that. Um, I mean, I think even if you look back at the previous election of Clinton-Trump, um, Trump built a better narrative. He was able, you know, he for, for people who were not happy with the status quo, his message was all about, I'm going to make it different from you, for you. I see you. I see that this, the last eight years haven't been working for you, and I'm going to make that different. And if you look at the basic narrative behind Clinton's campaign was, things are awesome, let's keep it this way. It's not hard to see why so many people went for Trump, even if they found him personally not in line with their values. At the root cause of what they needed was like, I need my life to be different. And he was the only one. And, you know, if we're looking at Clinton Trump, that was really saying, I'm going to make things different for you. So I think Yang did a very similar thing. And when he gave someone, when he gave people kind of an even better option, so saying, I, I understand that, that this was probably, you know, for some people, it may have been a difficult choice to go for Trump because, you know, they may not have liked some of the things that he stood for personally. But again, he was speaking to, I'm going to fix the situation that you find yourself in. For Andrew Yang to kind of come in and say, I see you, I understand how that happened. I have a plan to, to do it differently. And maybe in certain cases, he was more aligned ethically or however, by whatever, morally, whatever, with those voters. It makes perfect sense to me why people would switch. So yeah, I, I think you've read that situation completely accurately. Yeah, you know, and there's probably another thing worth mentioning here as well, Tamsin, and that is a message like that, whether it's from a political candidate or whether it's from uh, a product developer, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be an answer for everyone. I mean, this this is something that could appeal to a narrow slice of, um, you know, your customer base or to uh, the, the, the citizenry. Um, it, it's just about bringing along a certain audience of people who are able to get on board with that kind of messaging. Yeah, I think, yes, that's right. I mean, it comes, like I said, the, the most irresistible stories of all are the stories people tell themselves. And so if you are trying to communicate to create change, your laser focus should be on how do I build the story about my idea that those people will tell themselves and that there's comfortable enough telling themselves that they would actually tell other people about it. Mm -hmm. um, 
because that's it. I mean, the, the, the thing that was, you know, and I don't know this for sure, but I mean, one would suspect that one of the reasons why there was always these kind of like surprises at the polls where, when, when Trump was involved was because he tell, he, he succeeded on that first point of giving people a story they could tell themselves that this person's going to make my life different. This person is going to help me realize, uh, you know, some of the, you know, change some of the things that I haven't liked about the previous administration. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say that without judgment. Um, but I don't think he was as successful at the second stage of that because I don't know that people, he didn't give people, a, you know, that there's still big swaths of Republicans who voted for him that I think that weren't fully comfortable talking to other people about it. So I think that when you, when you can craft a story that people are willing to tell both to themselves and to other people, that's really the highest level of, I think, making your idea clear, but ultimately irresistible. Great. Ariel, thank you so much for your comment and question. For sure. But, but just like what Tamsin said, like that, that validation and understanding that like I got from Yang just, just, and then when you, when you have that thing in your head, that's like, Hey, he gets me. He like, like I, yeah, it, it's just, it's just a great feeling to have. It's like, Hey, some, somebody that's just, you know, having that conversation with me in good faith rather than judging you right out of the gate. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Because everybody wants to feel seen. It's uh, kind of the, the, the South African greeting, right? Sawubono, I see you. And, or, or the translation I understand from Susan David is by seeing you, I bring you into existence. Um, just acknowledging where people are and what they're going through is one of the most powerful things that you can do as a communicator, but particularly as a leader. That's great. Thank you. No, thank you so much, Tamsin. I mean, this has been a remarkable eye-opener for me. I hope for our listeners as well. Um, if people would like to find out more, where do we oh, find yeah. more? So please go to redthreadbook.com. Uh, it, that lays out this method I was talking about step-by-step, step, and uh, I hope people find it useful because that's, that's, that is my biggest goal for it. So thanks for having me on today, Scott. Excellent. There are all sorts of goodies that people can find there if you sign up, if you order multiple copies, uh, like Tamsin said, the worksheets, the newsletter, uh, the message in a minute. Uh, it is more red thread than you could possibly spin up yourself. Leaders have powerful ideas. By making those ideas visible and relevant to others, they become actions that can move the world. It's a matter of connecting with the hearts and minds of others and making your stories theirs. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, for you are a leader. Leader.